second week in Joshua chapter 2, and I'm going to read the whole chapter and ask the Holy Spirit to quicken this word to your hearts as we read it. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But <clears throat> she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the gorge. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house, and give me a true token, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sister, sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. Then she said, According to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Amen. 
Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would enable me to faithfully give an exposition of it, and that uh, we ourselves would have your spirit quicken the word to our hearts and enable us to grow in you as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we saw that this passage reveals the incredible love and compassion and grace of God who reaches down and rescues people out of a hellhole, basically, and uh, takes them, like Jude would say, as a brand plucked out of the fire. And if we are to reflect the heart of God, we not only need to come into agreement with his judgments, I think that's important, but we also need to be willing to be used as tools in his hand to rescue people out of similar uh, bondage. And I am ever so thankful for uh, the leadership of Michael and Bill and others who have uh, been even this past three days, you know, as the LGBTQ uh, crowd has been uh, out in force boldly sharing not only God's judgments and law, but also uh, God's grace. And it's my prayer that the Lord would bring much fruit from those labors. Now, we also saw that Rahab models true faith and true works and contrasts those two with the counterfeits that have come up in uh, the last um, years. Uh, for example, we saw six very concrete expressions of faith in this chapter that are in complete contrast uh, to some of the counterfeits that we, that we dealt with. And it's no wonder to me that she is uh, listed as a, a model of faith in the book of Hebrews. And there were other lessons that we looked at. But last week, our focus was on Rahab. And what I want to do today is uh, pick up on some lessons that we didn't cover. And so it's going to be kind of a haphazard uh, sermon, but I don't want to move on without looking at these uh, six lessons. You can just look at it as some more slices off of the loaf of bread, you know, that you're going to be eating today. First lesson in your outlines is that we must never pit human responsibility against the divine promise. Another way of expressing this is we should never uh, take the uh, di di discount God's um, requirements for prudence and care with the thought, well, I'm just going to trust God. Uh, th that is a false dilemma. It's not a, a biblical uh, way of looking at things. Now, this may seem like such an obvious lesson that I don't even need to teach on it this morning. But if you were a part of my counseling sessions over the last uh, many, many years, you realize you cannot take anything for granted. We need to constantly be reminded of the simplest truths in the Scripture. And I have run across many people who have had conscience issues on this precise false dilemma. For example, I've known Christians, believe it or not, who have thought that it's sinful to buy life insurance, health insurance, uh, house insurance, because they say that's not trusting in God. In fact, I know of an entire denomination up in Canada uh, who will put you under discipline. They say it is a sin to engage in, in to purchase uh, any insurance. Uh, it is a, a lack of trust in God. Well, there are principles in this chapter we're going to look at that will say otherwise. Another example years ago, one couple wondered if it would be expressing a lack of trust if the wife got surgery on her scarred fallopian tubes in order to have children. They had prayed and prayed 
for healing. They had been anointed by the elders. They confessed their sins. Uh, they really wanted to have babies, and they wondered, will this be seen as a lack of trust in God? And I asked them, so if, if the surgery is, is uh, uh, successful, are you going to stop trusting God to have children? And they said, well, no, we're going to be trusting God even on the surgery because the surgery is not going to work unless God blesses that. So at least in their case, this was not an example of a lack of trust in God. Uh, it was uh, taking the means that God had allowed in our hands but saying, God is the one alone who can bless those means. You know, when I take medicine, even herbal remedies, I'm always praying to God that he would bless that because I know if God does not bless those things to my body, they're not going to work. And maybe some of them are placebos, and the Lord blesses, <laughs> blesses uh, the placebo. I don't know, but I'm always praying. So the question is, are we allowed to use means? And I believe this is one of hundreds of passages that would indicate that we can. And to those who make trust and prudence incompatible, I would ask, why did the two spies hide out on the mountain for three days instead of trusting God to protect them? And why did they go over the wall secretly rather than boldly marching out of the front gate? You know, is that a lack of trust in God? Uh, James 2.25 says, no, it's not a lack of trust. In fact, it's an exhibition of their faith and of their good works. And let me quote from James when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. It specifically says that sending them out of another way was a good thing. Joshua 2, verse 1 says, Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly. Why did Joshua send out the spies, and why did he do so secretly? One commentary suggested that this was probably a lack of trust on Joshua's part, he should have sent them, he should have gone into the land without sending any spies. After all, didn't God com command them to just mobilize? He didn't command them to send spies in, just told them to mobilize. Another author claims that Joshua sending these spies was showing a trust in his own wisdom instead of in the Lord's wisdom. He pointed out that God was not going to use typical means to conquer Jericho anyway, and so it was absolutely useless to send those spies. He said it's a total waste of time, totally unnecessary, and worse than that, it was an expression of lack of trust. I disagree. Matthew Henry points out that faith does not replace our human responsibility. By the way, this has been always the historic Reformed view. Matthew Henry said, true faith would encourage our diligence in the use of proper means, unquote. And I agree. Let me read you God's command in Numbers 13, 40 years before. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. Now that is exactly parallel. God was giving them the land, and yet he commands the Israelites to use ordinary human means to achieve what God was going to give to them. And this is the way God has routinely worked down through history. So in Numbers, God said that he was going to send his glory cloud before Israel, and they were to follow the glory cloud. That's God's guidance. And yet, Numbers 10.31, we find Moses entreating his father-in-law and the Midianites to stay with him, to be their eyes, to guide them through the wilderness since they knew the terrain so well. So God guiding them did not mean that this vast army that's really spread out 
didn't need scouts to go ahead, watch for trouble, look for the best ways to navigate through some of those ravines. Um, God guided in such a way that the men still had to use their ingenuity, and the Amalekites actually did come out of those ravines to attack them. So uh, such uh, scouting uh, and prudence paid off. Another example, in Genesis, God commanded the earth to bring forth fruit and to multiply, and yet he still wanted Adam to be nurturing it. Uh, scripture makes clear that God is the one who brings the harvest, but does man have a role in it? Obviously he does. Plants, you know, he waters, he harvests. God opens and closes the womb, but he expects that we will have a part to play in that. When I uh, was engaged in the only debate that I've ever done uh, in California on um, uh, conception control. By the way, I'm opposed to most forms of, of so-called birth control. There are abortifacient, many of them, and there's other ethical principles that are violated uh, by the scripture. But anyway, my worthy opponent on this, uh, he said it would be a sin for a woman to get surgery on her scarred fallopian tubes because his principle was God alone opens the womb and closes the womb. And for you to try to take God's job in trying to open the womb is to fight against God. And therefore, it's an expression of lack of uh, trust. And he insisted we could only use the means of sexual union. And he agreed sexual union was a uh, human means. It's really arbitrary to say we can use one human means but not use other human means that the Scripture does not uh, speak against. Now, again, there are very good arguments against most forms of birth control, but lack of trust in God's providence is not one of them. Uh, one more illustration. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. But the way many people pit man's role and God's role against each other, you would think if God builds the house, then we don't have to build it. Or if God guards the city, we don't have to post watchmen on the walls. Well, God elsewhere commands us to post watchmen on the walls, right? It's a faulty dilemma. Now, hear me carefully here. I'm not saying that the spies did not have the potential to trust their own spying rather than to trust the Lord. In fact, that was exactly the problem with the 10 of the previous 12 spies in the previous generation. They used their spying to doubt God's promise and to actually rebel against God's uh, command of conquest. So self-trust is very possible and it would be wrong for us to trust our own resources rather than to trust God to bless our resources. I, I don't so much as take an aspirin. Somebody told me earlier I should, should take an aspirin. But anyway, I don't so much as take an aspirin without praying that God would bless it. You know, in, uh, down through history, when we were, uh, my wife and I were intimate, uh, we always prayed that the Lord would grant to us that we would ha give birth to only the elect and that they would love the Lord all their days. And we had other prayers, but uh, actually I started praying for my children and my grandchildren long before I even met Kathy. Prayer is one of the means that God uses, right, to, to bless his people. So here's the point. We can use means all the while trusting God, or we can use means as a reason to not trust God. It's all an issue of faith, and we looked at faith in detail last 
you're here. So don't see car insurance or house insurance as a way to relax in your trust of God. And the same is true of insect control or anything else that we're authorized to do, right? Uh, so I do not believe Joshua was doubting God's word when he sent spies, when he sent them out secretly, that's prudent, or when these men hid in the mountains for three days, that too is prudent. It was prudence by men who definitely trusted God. Okay, enough on that subject, but that's going to be kind of a foundation for some of the other points. A second principle, which we did not address last week, was why God waited so long to judge these perverse Canaanites. People have wondered about that. Um, if you look at Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, uh, you will see that God's promise to Abraham uh, was that Israel would come out of the land of Egypt, eventually inherit uh, Canaan. But there's an interesting verse there. It's uh, Genesis 15, verse 16. We're going to actually start with verse 13 to give the time frame. And it said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now I find that phrase, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, a very interesting phrase. Uh, King James words it that um, uh, it, it is not yet full. And the NIV has, has not yet reached its full measure. So the the Amorites, they're already wicked in the time of Abraham, and yet God patiently put up with their iniquity for 400 years, and then he gave them another 40 years of uh, repentance, at the end of which time Rahab repents, and then the Gibeonites, we're going to see in the future, the Gibeonites come to genuine repentance. Now, if God had judged them 100 years before or 400 years before, well, they wouldn't exist, would they? And so we've we got to keep God's plans uh, in, in our, our thoughts when we wonder, why is God so patient? Um, chapter 1, verse 11 indicates uh, they're going to move out in three days, going into judgment, and uh, the cup of iniquity had been completely full. Now, we don't know if we are in the waiting stage for America or whether we are in the wipeout stage. We don't even know if America's cup of sins is full yet. There are actually a lot of parallels between Canaan and America. Presently, statistically, we're probably killing more babies than the Canaanites did um, uh, through abortion. We have homosexuality and transvestism and other perversions that the Canaanites had. Uh, the LGBTQ plus crowd is out in full force over the last few days, just publicly trying to thwart uh, their agenda on our, our cities. And yet we have no way of knowing when the cup of iniquity of the Americans is full. We just know that God keeps a record, and when the cup is full, it's all over. So what difference could that make in our day-to-day -day living? Well, for one, this knowledge ought to motivate us to pray for our nation and to work for our nation, to get involved in the culture of our nation. When you are tempted to think that slowing down the moral degradation of our nation is not worthwhile, just think about this cup getting fuller and fuller. 
Every new abortion that happens is adding a little bit to that cup of iniquity. That's what I have in my mind. And I think it is worthwhile stopping abortion and socialism and other evils. And I praise God for the 11 or more states that have already uh, outlawed and made abortion illegal. Uh, sadly, I had one Reformed uh, pastor tell me that, no, he's, he's not going to let his church get involved in picketing at the abortion clinic. He says, that's Satan's territory. We're not trying to change Satan's territory. We're just trying to rescue people out of that territory. And I, I would beg to differ. It is precisely such attitudes that have caused the church of the past 100 years to fail to be salt and light and fail to slow down this filling up of the cup of iniquity. And Jesus said, if the church loses its saltiness, if the salt has lost its saltiness, it is good for nothing but to be cast out and trampled underfoot of men. I think that's what's happened to the church of Jesus Christ. It has become irrelevant uh, to culture, and it is being dominated by humanism. So anyway, the bottom line is, it's a good thing to try to slow down the filling up of the cup or even try to empty out the cup through reformation. I think there can be a complete reversal. Well, let's look at a third principle. When I grew up, Brother Andrew was one of my heroes, and I loved his book, God's Smuggler. And so it was a total surprise to me when I went to school and had all kinds of Christians who were criticizing Brother Andrew and saying this was in, he was in sin. He should never have disobeyed the law uh, of the Soviet Union by smuggling Bibles into those countries. And uh, in more recent years, I have seen other people uh, who have thought it's a serious sin for Voice of the Martyrs and Frontline Fellowship and Free Burma Rangers and other heroic uh, organizations going illegally into Islamic, Buddhist, and communist countries to deliver Bibles and preach the gospel. Now, what's their criticism? It's almost always the same. It's Romans 13.1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, sadly, they take that verse out of context and my book, uh, Divine Right of Resistance, shows how Romans 13 actually teaches the exact opposite. But Joshua chapter 2, all by itself, shows that all of the things for which Brother Andrew was criticized were being done right here. I believe with God's approval. Uh, Rahab didn't hide Bibles in her car, but she hides Christians in her attic. Verse 4, then the woman took the two men and hid them. She doesn't go across enemy lines herself. But she helps these two spies to illegally go across uh, enemy uh, across the border. Like Brother Andrew, this woman refused to hand over the goods that the government wanted. And in verse 3 it says, So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Now, I have read two commentaries. I'm thankful it's only two. But I've read two commentaries who have said she was in sin by not handing over those uh, spies to the government because we must submit to the government. It's really strange. They said it's a moral obligation to hand them over. But Hebrews 11 and James 2 praise her for disobeying her king in order to obey God. Many people criticize Rahab for hiding the truth from the enemy. But remember from last week that God defines the ninth commandment and during times of war, such hiding of the truth from those who will misuse the truth is not only allowable, it is mandated. To give the truth to God's enemies is to hate the truth and to stand against the truth. And so the larger catechism speaks of, quote, 
speaking the truth unseasonably, unquote, as being a violation of the Ninth Commandment. So it's saying you can actually tell the truth and be violating the Ninth Commandment. Uh, I think that's important to understand. Um, it is never appropriate to lie, I believe, but lying is unjustly sharing the truth or withholding the truth, unjustly. Now, granted, there are five different positions on this very complicated issue, and um, you know it might be good for us to debate this and uh, talk about all of the different positions that are out there on Discord. Uh, yeah, you visitors, we are real. We <laughs> we have a lot of uh, social discussions on Discord. It's, it's worked out rather well for us. But anyway, it, it, it is a tough question. I, I do respect the other positions, and I'm just explaining why I believe her actions were righteous. But more to the point of what we're talking about here, she disobeys and harbors these enemies of the state she sends the government soldiers on a wild goose chase, wasting their money, their time, and their resources, and none of that impinged upon her trustworthiness. She was trustworthy, and the spies could be trusted to keep their oath. Why? Because their concept of righteousness was bounded by God and directed to God, not the changing opinions of men. But a person might respond that we cannot get our ethics from a historical passage. They rightly point out that it's a logical fallacy to go to a historical example and say, because they did it, we ought to do it. You cannot get ought from is. Okay, that's a legitimate question. So they ask, where in the scripture are we commanded to do these things or even allowed by God to do them? And I address that in, in my book. But really, all you need to ask is what kind of submission does God command us to engage in? And the answer is, it is submission in the Lord, not submission against the Lord. That's exactly what Peter says. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Romans 13 makes clear that civil governments have no independent authority. It says that they are supposed to be God's ministers exercising God's authority, not independent authority. So think about it this way. Paul did not contradict himself when he got executed by Nero a decade later. No, he tried to submit to Nero where he could and to honor and respect Nero where he could. But when Nero was expecting things that contradicted God's word and commanding things that contradicted his word, he followed the example of the earlier apostles who told the authorities, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Acts 4, 19 through 20. They went out preaching in the streets in direct violation, contradiction of state orders. In Acts 5, 28, these magistrates said, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And Peter's response is, We ought to obey God rather than man. We ought to, okay? It is a moral imperative to disobey the civil government when the civil government commands us not to do our duty that we are commanded by God to do. To fail to disobey the government in such a situation is to disobey God. And in my book, The Divine Right of Resistance, I give over 200 scriptures where it shows God authorizing such disobedience and or blessing such disobedience. Here's the point. No one but God has unlimited authority. And the literal rendering of Romans 13.1 is that there is no authority if not from God. 
There's a chain of command from God to the magistrate to the citizen, and the only authority that the state has is a derived authority. So just like a, if you want to be simplistic, just like a sergeant has no authority to command his soldiers to shoot at the President of the United States, the President of the United States has no authority to command us to shoot at God. On the LGBTQ, it doesn't matter what the issue is. We cannot shoot against God. It doesn't matter if you're under his, he stepped out from God's authority when he has made that command. And so Rahab is very relevant to the situations of underground churches in persecuted countries. Let's not be critical and judgmental of men like Brother Andrew, Richard Wormbrandt, or Peter Hammond. They were following God's commands, I believe, in heroic ways in the front lines of the battlefield. We should pray for them, support them, and if you want a lot more information on the subject, you can read my book, The Divine Right of Resistance. Okay, the fourth principle is that these men and this woman were walking by faith and not by sight. And there is a lot of statements that indicate this. We looked at some last week, but all you need to see to prove that she was walking by faith and not by sight is that she really believes Jericho's going to go down. And if you understand how impregnable Jericho was, that's an astounding statement. Let me read you just a couple examples. Verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Verse 13, spare my father my mother, my brothers, my sister, and all that you have, and deliver our lives from death. That's an amazing statement when you realize she is safe inside of Jericho, and there is no visible, obvious way in which the Israelites are going to be able to get inside of that city. It's completely surrounded by two impregnable walls, huge fortresses, and any unbeliever who was looking on might say, lady, you're crazy. You're safe here. The only person you need to be afraid of is the king's soldiers. You're safe. And so she is going simply upon the word of a God who cannot lie. She was not operating by sight. God said that he would give Israel the entire land, so she believed it. And we too have got to get used to walking by faith and not by sight. If you walk by sight, you're going to think that the Great Commission is not achievable. That's just like, wow converting every nation, making every nation a Christian nation where they obey everything that Christ has said, uh, just not possible. If you're walking by sight, you're, you're going to have questions. Surely Jesus meant something else when he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. It's got to be spiritual authority. Surely it can't be authority over the state. And I've met many Christians who have denied that currently Christ has authority over the state. That's in the future, in the future premillennial, or whatever you call a millennium <laughs> for them. Uh, but it's not now. Uh, but has or has not Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He has said that. So why are we so discouraged? Why are we um, so prone to retreat? God has called us to go forth in the obedience of faith just as Joshua and Caleb did. I'll just give you another example. In our personal lives, we need to live by faith, not by sight. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Do you really believe that? If you believed it, you would pray like crazy. Prayerlessness is treating that statement as if it is false, and instead treating what we can see with our eyes as being much more true. On the flip side, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So when we say about any of God's commands, I give up. I can't do this anymore. It's too hard for me. We're walking by sight and not by faith. And that brings us to the next point, 
the victory was assured to them, even as it is to us. And, you know, the marvelous thing about this is that demons know that they are doomed. <laughs> they, they tremble at God's word. Demons are far more terrified of us than we are terrified of those demons. And I think it's kind of illustrated here. Verses 9 through 11 talk about how terrified the Canaanites were. And then verse 24 summarizes, They said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. And uh, Rahab herself said the same thing. Well, let's apply this. Though Bible-believing Christians are a tiny minority in America, there is abundant evidence that God's enemies are beginning to be terrified of Christians applying his law and his gospel in the public sphere. And given our tiny numbers and the huge progress that the enemies of God have made in America, that may seem bizarre. It may seem odd that they are so nervous about us. Is it demons that are making them scared? I don't know. But it could be. But you see the same fear the Canaanites had being expressed on MSNBC, on blogs, other media. SPLC has said that they are scared to death of Doug Wilson saying he has a fast-expanding empire. Uh, They're just worried to death he's going to be taking over America. (laughs) A geopolitical commentator said, Justice Alito's draft opinion reinforces the view that there's a very dangerous Christian movement afoot in our nation, and he blames... uh, especially Reformed uh, conservative Christians. A law digital commons legal brief denounces Senator Ben Sass for his call to investigate Pornhub, and then it goes on to denounce uh, other Christians who are coming into agreement with him, that we need to investigate Pornhub. And he calls us a dangerous Christian movement influencing Michelle Bachman, Rick Perry, and others. Now, I'm not going to bore you with other quotes, but the point is the Canaanites are concerned that the, the, the gospel is taking over. This past Tuesday, I listened to a, a one-and-a-half-hour lecture, and then it was followed by some uh, questions by uh, Frederick Edwards, the executive director of the American Humanist Association. That was a closed meeting. It was supposed to be only members there, but I have a friend who pretends to be a humanist. He's a mole, and he, he records all of these meetings, and so we get fresh information. Uh, but anyway, I was pretty impressed with this guy's research. He had read extensively and quoted extensively from Rush Dooney, Gary North, Jay Grimstead, Bonson, John Whitehead, and others. And he actually, uh, other than occasionally, you know, speaking nasty things about us, he generally gave a very fair and accurate description of presuppositionalism, theonomy, postmillennialism, what it means to have a comprehensive biblical worldview. Very knowledgeable. And again, the purpose of this meeting was to teach the affiliates how that they can undermine us and how they they can oppose us. Now, in his lecture, he gave his opinion that Christians who love biblical law, who hold to presuppositional apologetics, who believe in postmillennial eschatology, are the greatest threat to have arisen in his lifetime against atheism, humanism, and other secular systems. Now, interestingly, this guy is a pretty clever guy. Interestingly, he said, most Christians, you don't need to worry about. He said, don't worry about the amillennialists or the uh, premillennialists because he said they've robbed themselves of any hope of success in history. And, and this is a coming from an atheist whose motto is doing good without God. That's the motto he has on his, on his website. But his point about those pessimistic eschatologies is that people don't try to achieve what they think is unachievable. Makes sense, right? 
they're not going to try to achieve. So he said, you don't even need to worry about them. But he said, it's totally different with the post-millennialists. He knew that those who believe the Bible promises victory will be in this for the long haul. And, and by the way, when it came to law, he said, you don't need to worry about most Christians. You can instantly embarrass them with this passage from the law and that passage and the Christians will meet. Oh, no, no, we don't believe that. He said, what's weird is these Christians actually believe this stuff. They're not embarrassed by the law of God. Okay. So anyway, th this is the kind of uh, thing that he was coming up with. Edwards said, it wasn't our numbers that made him fearful since we are a tiny minority. Instead, it was five things that made us dangerous. And I want to ask you if you hold to these five things. Here they are. Any Christians who believe in the continuing relevance of Old Testament law are extremely dangerous. Okay. Second, any Christians who are post-millennial in eschatology, very dangerous. Third, any Christians who self-consciously are presuppositionalists, and he knows what presuppositionalism is. Fourth, any Christians who self-consciously embrace, embrace the whole Bible for the whole of life. And fifth, Calvinism. As he worded it, they have, quote, a formidable theology designed to take on all. And I said, yes, amen. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Now, in the question and answer period, he said that the biggest conflict, I found this very interesting, the biggest conflict uh, today is not between Marxism and capitalism. He said it's going to be fairly easy to win that one. He said the biggest conflict that we have today is between Marxism and Calvinism. And people are looking at him like, he said, Calvinism is a comprehensive worldview that even applies the Bible to economics, and he takes us seriously. Now, why am I quoting these Canaanites? Why bother? For the same reason the spies did, to encourage you that even they recognize that we are on the winning side. The bottom line is we need to have a biblical confidence that all other systems will eventually collapse just like Jericho collapsed. The two spies said in verse 24, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. May the church of Jesus Christ once again regain confidence that the Great Commission will be a total success, and all nations, without exception, will become Christian nations who will obey all things that Christ has uh, commanded. Uh, and, and it's going to be a success because that's God's plan. God is never a failure. That's the Great Commission. Are we willing to believe it? I think demons believe it, and they tremble. They tremble when we bring God's word with faith in this realm. And that's why demons use every trick in the book to keep the church from having an eschatology of hope and a worldview of faith. If he can rob the church of hope and faith, he will succeed. Demons will succeed. Why? Because Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. And without hope, we get discouraged. We give up. But if we embrace God's hope and live by faith, we will succeed. Well, lastly, we need to remember that this victory is not achieved because of the greatness of Israel, the faith of Israel, the works of Israel, anything else in Israel. After all, God gave them faith. God gave them their works and anything else great in them. Always we must remember two things. First, without Christ, we can do nothing. And second, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. 
And I think that's the symbolism, part of the symbolism of the scarlet cord. Let's read verses 17 through 21. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home, and I love this household salvation concept, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head, and the hand is laid on it. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. And she said, According to your word, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Now, most people never comment on where she got her cord from. But if you grew up in the Middle East, or you grew up in Africa, as I did, it's obvious. What is the symbol of harlotry worldwide, generation after generation? It's the color red. It's not just in America. you got red light districts. In Ethiopia, they didn't have any um, electricity, but they had red garment district, red uh, paint district, or some other kind of a red token. And I find it so fascinating that they made her take her token of her harlotry off of the front of the house and to put it on the back of the house where they're going to be going. Now it's no longer going to be doing her any good for business of harlotry. In effect, it is a symbol of repentance that she is removing what other people used to see as an invitation, and she is now putting it facing Israel, facing God. She's giving away all that she is, all that she has. She's giving God her sin, and God is cleansing her of her sin. And so, uh, now that the scarlet of sin has been dealt with, this can now be a token of the scarlet of sacrificial blood. During the Passover, the first Passover 40 years before, those who applied the blood of the lamb to the lintels of their doors and to their windows were spared the judgment of the death angel, and it is not by accident that they are on the verge of the Passover. In fact, they celebrate the Passover in chapter 5, uh, just before approaching Jericho, they, they're celebrating the Passover. So this scarlet token was probably a symbol of God's grace, a grace which is not possible apart from the blood of Jesus. And the death angel that made all of the rest of the wall crumble kept this part of the wall where she was at intact so as to save her and her household. And praise God for household salvation. God's covenant is such an awesome, awesome thing. I could preach a whole sermon just on that part. But, but um, anyway, this is her Passover. Because of that scarlet cord, the death angel is passing over her and her household. Are you a Christian? Have you trusted Christ's blood, which was shed for you? Without it, you have no security. If Christ did not die in your place and you have not applied the blood of Christ to yourself and to your household, then you and your household are doomed to God's judgment. But if you have trusted his blood, you not only have grace to take you through all of eternity, you have all the grace you need for your battles and for your duties down here below. And I urge you to go into this next week realizing that without Christ you can do nothing, but also realizing you can do everything God has called you to do through Christ who strengthens you. Amen. Father, thank you for your word.
thank you for the encouragement you give as examples strewn throughout your word of faith and good works. And I pray that you would stir up within our heart a faith to expect great things from you and to attempt great things for you. We love you, but we want to grow in our love for you. We believe in you, but we want to grow in our faith. And so I pray that you would pour out your spirit in our midst and give to us a confidence that if Christ is for us, who can be against us? We bless you, Father.